In a few minutes, you will all be invited forward to receive ashes on your forehead. And these ashes signify two truths, truths which our psalmist tonight in Psalm 103 reflects. First truth is that we are mortal. We will die. And the second truth is that we are wrong or sinful or not okay relative to our maker. So these two truths directly conflict in a a frontal way with two cherished dogmas of our day and of our age, the world in which we live. The first is that we will live forever. And the second is that we are just fine. So it's not that anyone really believes that we're going to live forever. I think most of us don't believe that, and most of our world doesn't believe that. Everybody knows that they're going to eventually die, but we never really think about death. Everything in our world is meant to shield us from the reality of death. We feel oftentimes quite invincible, even if not in the superhero kind of way, just in the not thinking about the fact that I'm terminal kind of way. And we often live with a sense that our days are not really numbered. And we can really easily, if we're honest, overestimate our own importance or the importance of our own context, our own place and space in the world, or our own moment. So I want to reason with you for a moment and say my guess is that most of our great-grandfathers and great-grandmothers, when they were in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, probably thought that they too were invincible and that their days were not really numbered. Thought that they might change the world. I think this is in some ways just the perspective of being human in our relative youth. But what's bizarre, if you think about this a little bit longer, is the fact that now, only four generations later, they're dead, and most of you cannot tell me the names of your great-grandmother or your great-grandfather. Nor can you tell me what they did while they were alive, what was important to them, or what mark they made on the world. Now, some of you might be able to do that. I grant that. But, but most of us won't be able to do that. And the sobering thought of this is that their present obscurity in our world will be our future obscurity in the world four generations from now. We, too, will die like they have died before us, and we too will be forgotten. But we don't really like to think about this, especially about the fact of death, that we will die. Uh, I watched a good bit of the Oscars on Sunday night after church, as I presume many of you did as well. Um, Not that, as most of you know me, movies are my strong suit, uh, or naming the people I see on the screen. But I was particularly struck, and I hope this doesn't show you that I'm somehow morbid and, uh, and that I need you know, s- psychiatric care. Um, but I was really struck during the Oscars this time um, by the, the prevalence of aging and the, the looming shadow of death. So celebrities like John Travolta, for example, uh, Julia Roberts, Goldie Hawn, and, and even you too, when they stood up on the stage, showed remarkable signs of growing old. 
not their once glorious, beautiful selves, at least not in the same way. And it was just kind of a bizarre experience, the passage of time being evidenced in these celebrities. And I should say, well, kind of, because obviously one of the things about the Oscars in particular that I think is quite strange and certainly bothers me in some ways is the defiance of age by so many in that room gathered in that place through plastic surgery and makeup and everything that money can buy. And I do have to say that I I really wonder, and I hope that some of you wonder this with me, that that I just kind of want to say, like, seriously, old person, are you really trying to look, you know, 70-year-old woman, 80-year-old man, are you trying to look 40 or 50? Because it's not really working. And honestly, it looks a little more bizarre than if you were just 70 or 80. The covering it up thing doesn't really work. And then there's that moment during the Oscars of rare honesty, the in in, in memoriam section, where for a long period of time, face after face, some young, some old, flashes up on the screen with one reminder after another that to this group of some of the prettiest and wealthiest people in our world, that everybody in some ways would like to be like, their turn would come to, that every effort we can make to escape it, we just can't. We will not live forever. We will die and our lives are really only a flash in the pan of history. Like fresh cut flowers in the vase in our kitchen, they look beautiful when you bring them home, only to find in the recent case in our house on Valentine's Day, that they were dead the next day, which I took not as a sign of anything more significant than that Trader Joe's sold me some bad flowers. A blip and then they're gone, much like our own lives. And the psalmist is honest about this in verses 15 and 16 of Psalm 103, where he says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. He knows that his life is short, just a breath. And this is the one, this is one of the things that the ashes that you're about to receive on your forehead tell us. It's one of the things that we reflect upon together tonight. We will not live forever. We will die and be forgotten. The second cherished dogma doesn't fare any better, I'm afraid. While no one really believes this one, or while no one really believes that nobody will die, I think a lot of people do believe the second dogma that I'm putting before you, which is that we're okay. I'm okay. You're okay. It seems sometimes like public discourse is just one big affirmation circle that we're all okay just the way we are. We're okay. You're okay. We're good people. Sure, we may not be perfect. Most of us wouldn't claim that. But we're hardworking, basically good people. And when we say this in our heads, we're comparing ourselves obviously to all the bad people that we read about all the time in the news who do really bad things like murder and launder money and sell drugs and so on. And we say to ourselves, well, you know, we're not like that. We're decent people who are really trying to help people in need and do the right thing. We are okay. We're okay. Obviously the problem with this kind of reasoning in our own minds is that we're using the wrong standards. Instead of looking across in our gaze to others around us, Um, our gaze should really be intended to be directed up at our maker. And his standard and his holiness is to be our measuring stick. And before that measuring stick, any one of us falls woefully short, like an ant looking up at an elephant. 
There is just no comparison. And the psalmist gets at this by saying in verse 10 that he does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. The psalmist is honest about our implication in sin and iniquity. The admission here is that my life is wrong. My life doesn't measure up to what it is supposed to be. It misses the target. It falls short. That's what we call sin. That's what sin actually means is to miss the mark. And in this way, the psalmist undoes the second dogma of our age. The ashes reveal that we're not okay. That's the second great truth that they're they're displaying for us. And more than that, because it's in those ashes that are connected in the tradition of God's people with repentance, is that we're sorry for not being okay. Not just that we're victims for not being okay, that we're just... Uh, we're just innocent bystanders, but that we've been active perpetrators in our not being okay. That we've made decisions and choices and walked in a direction and done and thought and said certain things that contribute to our not being okay. And tonight we express to the Lord through these ashes that we're sorry about the way we've contributed to our not being okay okay. That's what it means to be penitent, to feel sorrow, genuinely to feel sorrow over our sin. And that's much of what Ash Wednesday is about. I'm not okay. I've wronged you, God, and I've wronged my neighbor, and I'm sorry. And we'll spend more time tonight confessing our sins before the Lord. So my life is short, and I will die, and I will not live forever. Remember you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's stroke one of the ashes. My life is wrong, and I'm not okay. And that's stroke number two of the ashes. And saying these two things, this is such a countercultural day, but saying these two things... And meaning these two things is the key to true humility before the Lord. Can you say these things tonight and mean them? Affirm them? Say them honestly before our God? There's one more thing before we come up. Sometimes it's hard for us to say these things. It's hard for us to acknowledge our own limitations. It's hard for us to acknowledge that we're not okay and that we're part of the problem. But when we make these ashes on your forehead, there's a third thing, not just the stroke number one and not just stroke number two, but what the two strokes together signify. And then we make the ashes in the sign of the cross for a reason. As these truths cut us down to size in the best sense, they ready us. They ready us in the only way that they can for something that we so desperately need and long for as the people made in the image of God. And so long as we believe the two dogmas of our age and don't affirm the two truths that the psalmist and that this day in the history of the church affirms deeply, we will actually hope in ourselves. We'll remain our own saviors. But when this, these two dogmas are shattered as today is meant to shatter them once again for us in a new kind of way, 
will be emptied again of ourselves in order that we might be able to be filled by the life, love, grace, and light of the God who made us. And this is the good news behind the somber assessment of Ash Wednesday, represented by this cross that we make on the forehead with the ashes. And it's the cross and it's the sign that all that the cross signifies to us that beckons us to come and agree with the somber assessment of this day. That encourages us. Romans 2.4, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And what greater sign of God's kindness is there than the cross of Jesus Christ, which demonstrates the extent to which God would go to demonstrate his love and mercy and forgiveness for us as his people. And this is what the psalmist says that God is doing long before the day of Jesus in an anticipatory kind of way. Verse 14, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God's knowledge of our frailty God's knowledge of our limitations, God's knowledge of our our propensity to sin doesn't lead God to exercise even stricter judgment upon us. But it evokes his compassion. It evokes his merciful love. It evokes his committed kind of love to the creatures that he's made in his image. So it says in verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And he does this because he knows our frame. He knows these two somber truths about us. And it's his knowledge of these things that evokes his deep, steadfast love that enables him to remove our transgressions as far from us as the east is from the west, verse 12, and verse 4, to redeem our life from the pit. In light of our temporal nature, in light of my life being short, the psalmist upholds the eternal nature, the everlasting nature of the steadfast love of God. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Whereas we bloom and quickly fade, God stands strong forever in love, in forgiveness, and in mercy from everlasting to everlasting. This is what the cross on your forehead symbolizes to you and to me. Yes, our life is short. Yes, We are wrong. But the hope of this psalm and the thanks of this psalm, interestingly, these somber truths are revealed in a psalm that begins, bless the Lord, O my soul, and ends in exactly the same way, is in acknowledging the steadfast love and mercy and forgiveness of a God who deals with us, not as a judge waiting to inflict his wrath, but as a father who loves us, who pours out his life for us, who forgives us, and who ensures that our temporality will be undone by eternity. 
So as you come forward, affirm these truths, but affirm most of all the truth that overshadows the rest, marked upon you tonight by the sign of the cross. He loves you. He is with you. He forgives you. And he will sustain you and redeem your life from the grave. Amen.